So thank you again. Uh, my name is Raminder Paul Singh. I lead microbiome, um, the division at Eagle Genomics. And uh, my colleague, Nick James, is joining me here today. And he's going to tell you all the exciting stuff, and I'm going to tell you more the intro. So bear with me for a few minutes while I give you some introduction, um, set the scene, uh, the sort of challenges we're working on, um, how we're working with Unilever, et cetera. And then Nick will get into the details, and there's a lot of uh, detail he'll cover. Uh, so bear with us as we get there. Thank you. Um, so um, as I said, we're going to cover the intro. Uh, there's always the case of who we are. Been around for nine, 10 years, set in Hingston, UK. Uh, that's the Welcome Genome Campus, um, the big campus in the UK for uh, genomics, et cetera. Um, be, from day one, we've been an AWS partner. Uh, we build on AWS, et cetera. And we've really um, optimized around AWS and other cloud, um, other cloud uh, type providers. And as you expand past human genomics and you get into things like microbiomics, metagenomics, you get to life sciences, a lot going on there. And in fact, today, uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about in the workflow and the workflow manager are very applicable in those uh, metagenomics, microbiomics worlds. Um, there is a challenge. The challenge is, is, uh, is a very real challenge. Um, scientists have access to a lot of data. And this data is, is, is put, just so much of it um, prevalent. Internal, external, collaborative, et cetera. Reuse, um, you can't name it. There's just too much data available. Problem is scientists can't use the data. And there's a need to be able to bring that data into an ingestible form, understand the value of data and all that good stuff, and curate the data, et cetera. And that's, these are real upstream challenges before you even get to things like analysis and um, big you know, AI and things like that. Um, to do that, you've got a lot of variability in all these different data sets. It's, it's very complicated what's going on. And it leads to um, some modeling challenges and uncertainty and risks in your models when you do your analyses. Um, these problems are, um, need to be resolved. Scientists need to be our self-service to this, you know, um, these upstream problems uh, without the need for massive amounts of bioinformaticians, et cetera, in the system. There are certain um, characteristics or attributes at the bottom here I list here. Um, you need uh, trustworthy and validated evidence. Um, questions, you need to understand the questions being asked. You contextualize the questions being asked. If I'm doing a study on topic A, it's very different to doing a, a study on topic B. And they may involve similar types of data sets, for example, from immuno-oncology to looking at certain types of skin microbiome. Um, they may involve uh, reuse of certain types of data, but the nature of that use, the context of that use is very different, so you need to work that. And then data becomes an asset, and for all those folks out there who worry about buying data, generating data, licensing data, et cetera, there's a lot of OPEX being um, rolled out there, and you have to need to manage that. And then the last point here is, is that these are complex questions being asked um, in studies. So scientists are faced with having to look at the combination of data sets, not just single data sets. Um, to roll this up into a world of what this means in terms of trends, we've all seen this, we all know this. Um, we've gone from sitting at our desktop, you know, in the sequencing world with a, a handful of sequences, <laughs> I had called sequences 100K, um, all the way to billions of sequences, and there are billions of sequences being rolled out, and especially, when, again, if you're in the microbiomics, metagenomics, it's far more complex than uh, human genomics, clinical genomics. It's uh, very hard to industrialize and standard that, standardize that world, and there is just so much horsepower you need new to be able to add speed, and you, new th you need things like AWS, um, and you need things um, like on-demand. And so, you know, Eagle, as I say, has been working on this for 10 years, et cetera. And so you'll see here these terms here, e-cataloging, e-hive. You know, there's some technologies, Nick will talk about that in a minute. To split this into two, two sides of the coin, 
Um, you've got the side which says, how do I make this seamless? How do I make this scalable? How do I put it on cloud and all that good stuff? That's the left-hand side you're seeing here. Um, that's where we, we should be, absolutely need to be, and if we're not there already, if it's not industrialized for the scientists to directly use point and click, um, then we're probably behind the times. The, the thing is, is that with the advent of some of these um, AI techniques and with the um, statistical power we have, we can now move to a world where it's questions-based, where it's actually far more evolved, where scientists can actually pose, present the questions they're asking, and the, the data can be self-service to them. And this, this change, this paradigm change in how um, data is accessed, used, and then analyzed, et cetera, is, is an um, inflection point for the way that R&D is being done in industry today. So you watch that space, please. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about technology, which is embedded, a workflow manager technology, which is embedded in both these left and right sides, um, and the importance and how we've got to developing that technology. Um, it, to put that in another context, if we're a, a scientist today, we'll sit down and go through some um, analysis, it'll be, a, it'll be a fairly kludgy manual process that will meet constraints of time and cost, but innovation will be suppressed because they won't be using the data sets available to them. We understand that that's a problem. You can, you can offer terabytes of data to a scientist, they'll only use the data they understand at hand, typically their data. Um, so if you want to ungunge this, you have to provide a self-surface approach, and you know, hence the right-hand side of the, uh, the slide I mentioned earlier. And you have to allow the system to use appropriate deep learning techniques, use appropriate on-spot cloud um, analyses. So you've got the OPEX working, you've got the AI working, and you're able to provide, in this case, um, the biologist um, data at hand, which they need um, in a very seamless, iterative fashion without armies of bioinformaticians um, needed in support. You build this all into an architecture. Now we're going to get to um, you know, how Nick's, uh, Nick's uh, deep dive is going to you know, find its way in the slot into this. You've got a whole series of activities needed. You need to think about catalogs, you need to think about curation, you need to think about valuation discovery engines, you need to think about data access layers, NFRs, non-functional requirements, pieces, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, a high-level uh, functional architecture for you. And you can see where the red box is painted. Um, this is where the, um, the workflow manager kicks in. And actually, we're using starting to deploy the workflow manager across this flow. Um, so the importance of speed, cost, uh, you know, on-demand, et cetera, become extremely um, relative to, uh, to relevant across uh, you know, a functional architecture, not just in a certain parts of it, and Nick will touch upon that. Just uh, mentioning Unilevers, um, uh, the context of the case study. So, so as you can imagine, these last CBG, CPG or FMCG companies have um, R&D. They're doing a lot of microbiology, a lot of microbiome, lots of, you know, whether it's 16S to um, metagenomics, et cetera. And as they go through this, they're doing a lot of study work at scale studies, and they're trying to process this data um, with OPEX in mind, with scaled use in mind uh, for scientists. So here, what you have here is um, a very simple view. We're bioinformaticians in the middle. We need to get the bioinformaticians. We need to industrialize that portion of the flow so that scientists can work with you know, the lead bioinformaticians as necessary, but really, it's the scientists running the workflows. And so to put this in a series of requirements, um, we have the background of requirements. So Unilever have certain needs from their um, engagements um, at, at an industrial level. And as you can see here, this requires um, new biology to be applied, new informatics programs, et cetera, and access to public data. You need uh, this underlying architecture must be evolvable. I mean, these are things we understand. AWS 
you know, developers understand these things, but you're seeing the whole CPG, FMCG, biopharma markets waking up to these requirements. And then, of course, you need to be able to use the uh, robust solutions that AWS um, offer here in this case. And you can see the outcome on the right-hand side. Um, there's a speed in, there's a scale at, what, uh, at which scientists can now use the data, use the workflows, and this is what you want. You want many scientists directly tapping, directly running. You want things running much faster. You want 20 times speed, you know, at minimum. And you want OPEX to accordingly come down, and Nick will talk about some of that. And then, of course, you want to know that it, the public cloud works in these environments. You have confidence, confidential data, and these very conf uh, confidential workflows. And my last slide is just to um, reflect that this does lead to really uh, credible, powerful outcomes. This is a Nature Scientific Reports paper from this year. And it shows a, a first-of-a-kind oral microbiome um, a product claim. And these are very hard product claims to get, very thorough studies. You know, please do let us know. We'll send you the paper. It's not a problem. You know, contact us afterwards. And again, you know, Pete Keeley here just commenting on what it's done for the, the team there. So now I'm going to hand over to Nick. And Nick will um, give you more details about that workflow manager. Thanks, Nick. Raminder. Uh, so as uh, Raminder has uh, been introducing, uh, I'm going to talk about how we uh, run workflows at uh, Eagle Genomics and how we've used the Amazon Cloud to do that. Um, so before I go into that uh, technical side, I just wanted to take a quick step back uh, and uh, think about the process that uh, Raminder's been describing a little more. So we mentioned there's uh, this bioinformatician. Uh, so there's, a, there's an end user scientist who's producing this, this raw data and they hand this to the bioinformatician. So uh, what, what's happening at this point? Um, so they're um, basically running a, a series of uh, uh, steps. And these are bioinformatics tools. There's, there's a huge variety of bioinformatics tools. They're basically um, uh, complex uh, algorithms. Uh, and a very wide um, uh, range of things that they're doing here. Um, and uh, they, each one requires a high-level expertise. We need to understand the function that this tool is doing, and, uh, and therefore uh, we need to understand the parameters that are going to get the best um, uh, result with using this tool. And each one can be uh, complicated to install. Uh, they can uh, be produced by, by uh, um, a variety of people who, and so there may be varying levels of documentation and things like this. So the net result here is that this process is uh, uh, time-consuming and challenging for, for this bioinformatician. And so we sort of uh, painted this picture of a fairly ad hoc uh, uh, process uh, using a lot of uh, uh, manual uh, expertise and time. Um, but actually, if we um, break this process down, what's uh, really happening is we're, we're going from step one, and step one's flying to step two, step two's flying to step three, and to step four. So we can define these steps, uh, and we can document them, and, um, and, and really uh, understand explicitly what, what's happening. And once we've done that, then we can take another step, and we can represent this programmatically. So we have a, a workflow configuration file of some sort. And of course, when we've got, got this far, then we've taken a very big step uh, into towards enabling reproducibility. So we're not relying on this manual sequence of steps. We can, we can run this uh, programmatic uh, steps uh, again and again. Um, so how do we run these steps? Uh, well, we use a, a workflow engine. Uh, and uh, there's a, a very wide variety of workflow engines out there. And they will have different advantages and disadvantages or strengths and weaknesses. 
so for us, in this um, scenario, then we have some, a number of very key requirements which are essential for us. Uh, and the first of these is that the workflow engine is, is very scalable. Uh, we're working with very large data sets, and we need to be able to scale up to hundreds of, of machines and um, cope with large data files. And we need something which is uh, reproducible. This is essential in a scientific environment. If we take the same workflow, the same data, we, we end up with the same results. We need something which is traceable. We need to be able to monitor the, the, the workflow run. And uh, we need to be able to see what each job is doing. Uh, and this is useful for development as well, of course. And we need something which is robust, because sometimes jobs are going to fail. They might just need uh, rerunning. Uh, we need to track all this process and not just um, uh, fall over at the first um, hurdle. And uh, we need uh, something which is uh, capable of handling complicated workflows. So for example, if we have a, a sequence file and we uh, measure the quality of that in, in one step, then we might want to flow to a different branch if that quality is not very high, rather than um, flowing down the main branch and waste uh, compute resources. So we need to handle conditional data flow and this type of thing. Um, so at, at Eagle, we've uh, based our, our workflow um, approach on an open source software called eHive. And eHive has been developed since 2004 at the European Bioinformatics Institute, or EBI. And EBI is a world-leading research uh, institute um, uh, producing and hosting uh, a very wide variety of uh, biology-related um, uh, databases, which are illustrated in the diagram here. Um, and eHive is involved in, in many of these processes in um, uh, processing this uh, data. So basically, uh, eHive is a very tried and tested uh, workflow engine in, in a genomics uh, large-scale uh, environment. So before I talk about how we've utilized eHive to, to run our workflows in a production environment in the, in the cloud, then I just need to... Uh, explain some key concepts so that we can understand the process that, that we uh, needed to take. So firstly, eHive is a, a Blackboard uh, system. And what this means is that uh, when we run a workflow, this workflow template is, is loaded into this Blackboard database. And this database uh, uh, contains now the structure of the workflow. It understands the, the flow from step to step and the parameters that are needed. And, uh, and secondly, it uh, has a record of all the jobs at the different steps. So how does uh, eHive actually run jobs if it's not the, the this, uh, central Blackboard process which is, um, which is running them? Uh, well, they're processed by uh, autonomous agents, which we call workers. And uh, in this uh, diagram here on the right, then we have uh, a worker for analysis A. This is a round worker, which is matching the the, uh, the diagram on the blackboard on, on the left, and we can see there's a, a one job ready for that analysis. We also have an analysis B, which is a, a diamond-shaped uh, uh, worker, and there's no jobs for that analysis. And what happens is that the worker queries the blackboard to see if there's any jobs that match its analysis type. And uh, in this case, we have a job which uh, analysis A, uh, the worker, can process. So it claims that job and starts running it, but it also updates the status of, uh, of the blackboard. And then um, as it's um, processed that job and it completes, it updates the status to done, and we create uh, five more jobs in, in this example. So we can see job, job uh, creation is a dynamic process in, e in eHive. Um, so, so hopefully it's um, this is clear that this, this approach we've um, 
We don't have a load on the central system. It's the workers which are claiming jobs and creating new jobs. So it's a very scalable design, sort of inherent to the design of uh, eHive. So I mentioned a lot about this, this eHive worker. So what, what is uh, an eHive worker? So firstly, it contains the bioinformatics tool. This is obviously the, the tool we're interested in, the, doing the um, interesting algorithm. Then secondly, we have uh, something that we call a, a runnable. And basically, this is a fairly simple uh, wrapper around the bioinformatics tool, which handles some very useful uh, functions. And firstly, uh, it will handle the input parameters. And uh, so, for example, does the uh, parameter have a value when, it should, should, when it's an essential parameter? And is that value in, in, in the correct format that we're expecting? And then it will handle the input uh, fetching of the input data and get that, make that available for the bioinformatics tool to run from whatever location that's been in. And then, of course, it will run the bioinformatics tool. And again, this is, uh, can be um, a fairly complicated um, process, and it's good to uh, manage that within the runnable. Uh, so, for example, if, uh, if a file is of a different type, then we might want to use a different set of parameters, and we can make that decision as the uh, runnable is um, uh, running the bioinformatics tool. And then we, uh, once the tool is completed, it's created our output files, we write those to our output location. And within all, all of these processes we've described, then eHive is logging information. So if something goes wrong in the uh, input fetching stage, the file doesn't exist or something like this, it's logged and uh, we can um, see, see what's uh, happening. So we've uh, introduced the eHive worker. So how does eHive actually run workers? So it uses a, a batch scheduler to do this. Uh, so eHive monitors the, the blackboard and sees whether there are jobs that are ready to be done. In this case, there's five ready here. And then it checks the, the batch scheduler, sees if there's workers already in the queue or whether there's workers already running. And it makes the decision that in this case, we need to uh, start more workers. So it places workers in the queue. So we're on to analysis B here, which is a diamond-shaped one. So we've, uh, uh, we've requested some diamond-shaped workers in the queue. So it's a scheduler which uh, finds the available resources. That's what it's um, designed to do. And uh, it, it, when, when it finds a resource, then it launches those uh, uh, workers. So note that eHive is not uh, running uh, each job one by one. It doesn't, it's not managing millions of jobs. It's, what we're doing is we're requesting workers to start, and they will handle the um, fetching the jobs. So it's quite a scalable uh, design. So when the worker starts, then it queries the blackboard and they get the, the, uh, the jobs. So we've got three jobs running and two jobs ready now. And then um, as those uh, jobs completed, they're going to create more jobs. So we're on to analysis C now. Um, and what we find is that the diamond-shaped workers, we had three of them, so there's only two jobs left. So two, two workers have claimed two more jobs. And uh, we've got one worker with no jobs left. So that worker just exits. And uh, eHive is then monitoring the blackboard and sees there's now 24 jobs ready in the third analysis, analysis C, and this is our rectangular-shaped analysis, and uh, so it uh, submits these requests into the queue, into the uh, batch scheduler, and, and the batch scheduler will then uh, find uh, resources available and run those workers. And what we can see here is that those workers will claim jobs, and we actually have um, jobs from multiple analyses running at the same time. So eHive is quite dynamic and perfectly happy to run uh, different steps of the workflow all at the same time. And uh, there's still a lot of jobs uh, there ready to be run, so eHive um, will uh, put more work workers into the queue and uh, as the resources are available in the scheduler, then um, it will run the jobs. 
So that was a very quick introduction to some key concepts about eHive. So um, now I'd like to talk about how we've um, adapted this and we've uh, managed to run uh, our pipelines in AWS Cloud, and in fact, how we brought it back again. So we started with this open source software, um, eHive, which was developed at the UBI. And in fact, as it was developed at the UBI, they um, had um, uh, a cluster a management system called LSF in mind, which is what they have on site there. So it's, it's primarily designed to run on LSF. And um, we want to uh, make this a part of our platform. And uh, to do this, we need to be able to run in a cloud environment. This is, a, uh, this is a, our, our approach that we wanted to take. So secondly, the original eHive, it uh, requires a lot of technical knowledge to, to run. Uh, it's primarily a command line uh, run tool. Um, and we want to enable the, the scientist, who's not, not a software programmer, to be able to run the pipeline without any knowledge of eHive. And lastly, we want to then integrate it with other components of the, the Eagle Genomics uh, platform. So going back to 2008, uh, which is a very long time ago in, in, uh, in, in the um, ODOS um, world, and then we uh, adopted this approach of representing an eHive worker as an AWS instance. So it's uh, so fairly straightforward. We have an AMI, which con contains all the, the, the installation, and uh, we have uh, an EC2 instance, which is running with the Blackboard on. And as it's processing jobs, it uh, starts the appropriate AMI, uh, an instance based on the appropriate AMI. And that um, is now our worker, and it grabs the jobs and processes them, as, as I've described. And we fetch and write inputs from uh, the Amazon S3. Uh, so I should say that this uh, was uh, uh, this very um, early um, days of um, Amazon uh, Cloud, and uh, we were um, uh, sort of uh, quite early in, in, right, in, in running workflows in production in the cloud. So it was, um, it was an effective approach. Uh, but um, there were issues with the uh, resource usage. So we're uh, having uh, to specify each um, each workflow step needs different resources, and they vary, vary uh, quite widely. And uh, so we have a bit of a bottleneck where we've, we've been using one instance type, and then we need to switch to another, and we need to wait for the instance to terminate and start again. Um, and so we can, we can improve that slightly by using uh, sort of an average instance type, uh, but uh, again, that's not ideal. Uh, and also, we have a tendency to write uh, the whole workflow onto a single AMI, and this has uh, several disadvantages that it slows the development time. Uh, it's, different to, it's difficult to test an individual analysis, so it becomes merged into a workflow as a whole, and that means that we're not getting nice reusable analysis steps, which is what we really want. But one thing that we learned during this process, uh, where we could be installing 30, 40 different bioinformatics tools uh, in, in, in one workflow, is um, we started automating installation of the bioinformatics tools rather than doing this by hand. Uh, we used a configuration management tool called Chef to do this. Uh, and this meant that uh, we could have a cookbook, which would be a GitHub repository, repository and it would contain a, a versioned a version of each uh, cookbook, and we could also test that installation. So we, um, we, we improved the, the whole installation process and automated it, uh, which was a big um, help. So then, of course, along came Docker, and uh, we started to think, well, can we represent our eHive worker as a Docker container? And there are two uh, main uh, challenges here. Can we uh, make an eHive worker into a Docker image, firstly? 
And then uh, once we've done this, how can we manage scheduling this container uh, across the cluster? And are there any tools that, that will help us with this? And this is back in uh, 2015. So I'd like to talk now about that first challenge, making that uh, Docker image. So uh, we, we start with a Docker container here. And as I mentioned, we already had uh, a, a good library of uh, bioinformatics tool cookbooks. And uh, so it was uh, surprisingly easy to point Chef at building our Docker container. Uh, so we've already got our installation, and we can just run that on the container. So, so we've got our bioinformatics tool installed. And uh, we've also got a, a versioned uh, installation for, for that. And uh, using Chef, it's very easy to incorporate our, our runnable code, which is now a separate GitHub repository. And again, this is a, a versioned um, software. And we can integrate all these things together and the other eHub dependencies which are needed for the runnable to, 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 to work. And uh, now we can um, run each, uh, uh, the test that each runnable has, uh, such as um, running the bioinformatics tool. So, so we now have the tool installed. We can actually run the test in, in a meaningful way um, with some test data. Um, and uh, we can also test various aspects of the runnable, such as validating input parameters and whether it's creating the expected number of jobs given the test data that we've given it. And once we've built this container, we can then uh, mount the uh, runnable code uh, into the container. So we can develop that code on our laptop with our ID of choice. And uh, we can actually run it, run the tests in effectively a, a production environment. And um, having got this far, then it's, um, it's a sort of fairly logical step just to um, have a nice continuous integration um, environment. So when, when we make a commit to our, uh, our runnable repository, or in fact on a weekly basis as well, then Travis will trigger a, a, a build, and Chef will build this container with uh, the runnable and the bioinformatics tool. And then it will run the test that uh, we've um, been looking at. And uh, if those tests pass, then it will push that image to, to the repository for that analysis step in Docker Hub. Uh, so just to uh, just pause uh, slightly and uh, consider some uh, questions that I found uh, uh, very relevant about uh, how we're building Docker images. So firstly, do we know how the image that we're, we're using was built? Um, so uh, in other words, um, if, if we don't, um, should we be trusting that, that image and um, really, we should have some kind of documentation about this. And um, So secondly, uh, does that build still work now? So if the last time it was built was a year ago, uh, can we rely on that actually working now? I mean, very often, the dependencies and uh, things are going to change, and the build just won't work anymore. Uh, so again, uh, we need a process of continuous integration to, to ensure that um, we, we know that it's still working. And does, in fact, when, when the build works, that's no guarantee that the, the, the runnable the, the, and, the, and the bioinformatics tool is actually working. So we should be running tests on, on, the, um, on the software having built it as well. And again, uh, continuous integration is um, a good solution to that. And then lastly, uh, do we have uh, in, uh, uh, any need to run any other container types other than Docker? Uh, so for example, if we're running in an HPC environment, then Docker's um, might, uh, uh, we might not be allowed to, to run Docker, basically. Uh, so do we need to bear in mind um, that in, as we're um, um, choosing how to build our images? So now we've got to the point that we have a, a workflow configuration file. It's uh, in its own GitHub repository. 
and its uh, version. So we've got version one in this example. And then each analysis step within the uh, workflow refers to a specific Docker uh, image. Uh, so in this example, analysis A is pointing towards uh, the, the analysis A Docker um, repository. And it's, in fact, it's using the version one tag. So we can have uh, multiple tags, obviously, for each Docker uh, repository. And then analysis B is pointing to the version two tag in the, uh, in the uh, Docker image uh, B. And um, analysis C is pointing to version one tag of the uh, repository for the analysis C image. And what that means is that once we uh, deployed our version one of the workflow, uh, we can very happily go on to version uh, two. We can, so we can deploy version two uh, at a, at a, for another customer and not worry about breaking version one, or uh, we can have multiple versions, uh, whatever. Um, so in this case, uh, version two and analysis A is uh, using version three. Now it's using a different tag. Analysis B is using version two. Uh, so we can define all these things, and that's versioned in our, in our workflow configuration file. So I talked a lot about versioning, uh, and why is that? Well, it's, it, it's essential um, in, in scientific workflows. Then reproducibility is key, and, and in fact, uh, it's quite a significant problem uh, now, but uh, there's sort of a, a, a number of uh, publications where other, other groups are not able to replicate the work in that publication, and that, that's, uh, that's a major issue. Uh, and uh, reasons for this are that the steps are not well enough defined, so we need to be very explicit about exactly what each workflow step is doing. And uh, we need uh, very clear instructions um, about that, uh, and the versioning is uh, obviously a, a key part of that. Uh, and this is also um, important in um, quality control and compliance and other processes. And uh, when uh, our end user scientist runs a workflow, then we generate a, a workflow run report. And, and that contains a description of a workflow that um, they can understand. So it's not the programmatic configuration file. It's a description, uh, diagram, et cetera. Uh, and it also uh, shows each tool and version that was using that workflow. And this is really important because uh, it might be in three months' time that they want to run the same workflow again with the same data, and they would expect the same results. So it's important to know what, which uh, tools and versions, and they really do uh, want to know that. So another aspect uh, that we've um, added to the eHive worker is um, uh, the, the logging um, and um, having uh, hundreds of uh, workers all running jobs. We need to keep track of that. So we uh, added the ability to uh, using FluentD and Elasticsearch to, to, to log these jobs to the central um, logging um, system. And once we've got uh, the data in Elasticsearch, then obviously we can use Kibana to visualize that. It's a very dynamic way to, to create um, nice interfaces uh, to Elasticsearch. So in this example, then we've got, um, in the top left, we've got the, the job count um, over time. So it's a good way of just monitoring what's going on, uh, and then errors and warnings, and a job, uh, even job analysis um, per, per, per uh, analysis. So now I'd like to talk about the second problem that we had, which is how do we deal with um, scheduling these containers? So uh, just uh, to briefly uh, sort of recap, then uh, eHive um, was originally designed to, to uh, schedule jobs uh, on, the, on an LSF cluster. And to do this, it um, uses a, an LSF interface. And in fact, there's, it also has another interface. It can schedule jobs on an SGE cluster. So the obvious um, 
uh, thing for us is that we'd make another interface, uh, a Docker interface, and that would schedule jobs to some kind of Docker uh, scheduler as well. So we could write this interface quite easily. But what about the uh, cluster? What um, tools are there that is going to, are going to be suitable for eHive? So this goes back to 2015, and obviously um, this is quite a fast-moving uh, field, and things are uh, different now. Um, but at the time, we were looking um, for some key uh, criteria, and uh, it has to be a good scheduler, obviously. Uh, it needs to be able to schedule containers, uh, thousands of containers. And uh, yes, there were various um, uh, tools that could do that. And we need something with a queryable interface. So we need, eHive needs to be saying, needs to find out how many workers are running. Again, that's possible. And we need to be able to allocate memory uh, resources and CPU usage before the eHive, uh, before the worker uh, starts. And this is really important with bioinformatics tools because they can quite happily uh, carry on. Uh, in some cases, for an hour or two, we're using very little uh, memory, for instance, and then that memory can really um, expand and use, say, 50 gigabytes. Uh, so we don't want our, um, our, our decision-making to cram uh, lots of containers all onto one machine just because they don't happen to be using much resource at the time, and then for all of them to start um, needing lots of memory. Um, so we know this happens in advance, so we want to be able to allocate it. And then we need to be able to auto, we need this to be able to auto-scale. So this is really important. Uh, as I've been describing, eHive can create these jobs uh, dynamically, and at the start of the workflow, we, we typically just have one job. So we don't want 100 uh, instances running to process our one job, um, and uh, we need to scale down again. And there weren't really any uh, solutions at the time that would um, do the um, memory allocation and auto-scale. We also need a, a queue, so obviously, if uh, we're we don't have enough instances running. We don't want to lose that request for a container, so we don't want to put it in a queue. And again, uh, there wasn't really anything at the time. And lastly, we needed something which is uh, not uh, tied to uh, a particular uh, cloud um, platform. So we have customers which uh, have, have their, um, their preference of provider, so we need, we need to be um, fairly cross-platform in our choice. And there were a number of um, tools here. So, um, as you can see, there wasn't anything uh, at the time that uh, exactly met our requirements. So, we um, decided to, to, to put our own solution together, and we called this a Docker Swarm Orchestrator. And we tried to, to choose the, the biggest sort of um, uh, starting uh, components that we can, rather than writing lots of uh, stuff that's already there. So, uh, we uh, looked at container scheduler, and we chose a Docker Swarm for this. This is a legacy uh, version of uh, Docker Swarm. And then to enable an auto-scaling feature, we uh, chose the Docker Machine API. Uh, so this, this Docker Machine handles starting instances and adding them into a swarm and, and uh, terminating instances and removing them, obviously. Uh, and it's also very cross-platform. Cross so all that cross-platform work is handled for us um, in, in Docker Machine. And we needed to write the REST interfacing and queue, and basically we, we, we just did that from, uh, from scratch, really. Uh, we used a uh, RabbitMQ for the cube. Um, and so the, the, these components add up, and that's basically what makes the Docker Swarm orchestrator. So just to show how this works in, in practice, uh, then uh, we make a container post request. This goes to the REST interface of the, the DSO. And uh, then uh, when we make the request, uh, the, that DSO puts that in the queue. 
So now that we have a container in, in, in the queue, we don't have any instances running, so we create a new swarm. Uh, so the Docker swarm uses a, a discovery service, uh, so we use console here, and uh, we register this new swarm, and then we use the Docker machine API to uh, add instances to this, this swarm when we have uh, things in the queue. And then uh, that instance is registered in, in Docker Swarm, and Docker Swarm uh, pulls that image from Docker Hub and runs the uh, container um, and, and does the scheduling uh, bit uh, with the resources available. So we can post any number of jobs into, uh, into this queue. So here we've got some large containers with higher memory requirements and some small containers. These go into the queue, and uh, the DSO starts the uh, containers using uh, resources um, as available. So we have more jobs, so it started more instances. Uh, so we can see we can have uh, four small containers on one instance here, and uh, just the one large container fits on, on, on and takes up a whole instance. So, so obviously the, the resource use is, is a lot more efficient uh, already. And we still got two um, large containers there as well in the queue. So at this point, if we query the container count endpoint, then we can see that there are two queued jobs and five running. We obviously get a lot more information than that, but this is just an example. And as we've got those two containers in the queue still, then the DSO starts up some more instances. So you can see how it's um, uh, scaling up based on the, um, on the demands here. And there, there's um, uh, containers start running. And now in our um, endpoint, we have seven running containers. So uh, now I'd just uh, like to put these two uh, stages together and how, um, uh, how this all works in, in practice. So we have a, a workflow with different steps, and each step needs different resources. So analysis A is 2 gigabytes, analysis B is 7.5 gigabytes, analysis C is 100 gigabytes. So now uh, eHive uh, looks at the, the blackboard and sees there's jobs to be run. In, uh, this is for analysis A, so it's two gigabytes. So it makes a request to the DSO, and this two gigabyte container goes into the queue. And as we described, the DSO creates a swarm, starts an instance, and then Docker Swarm pulls this image from Docker Hub, uh, and there's our two gigabyte container running. So the instance that it's pulled here is the, um, the versioned uh, instance for uh, image for uh, analysis A. So it's specific for this analysis. And now this is an eHive worker. And that worker queries the blackboard and grabs that job. So we now have one job running on that instance. And as that job runs, it fetches the data from the e-catalog, e uh, which is um, stored in S3. And as it's uh, processing, then it will write the output back, back to the catalog. And then we've created uh, five more jobs and uh, these will go into the queue and get processed in the same way. So these are um, our analysis B. There are seven and a half gigabyte um, memory uh, container. So we need to start up some more uh, uh, instances to, as we have more containers. And then these, uh, these start up and it um, grabs these jobs and, uh, and processes them. So that's how we've uh, put these uh, components together. Um, so just a quick note on spot instances. Um, we, yeah, I mean, a uh, great idea. Um, we, we get 80% um, reduction on the on-demand um, price, so it's just a, a huge, huge uh, cost saving. 
Uh, and just a couple of notes that the incident site can, um, reduction can vary widely, so um, it's not necessarily what you'd expect. A more uh, expensive on-demand um, price can be cheaper as a spot instance. And also the availability zone uh, is, can, can vary a lot. So some availability zones, such as the, in, in, in red here, uh, obviously have um, some very high peaks, whereas others are very stable. So just um, need, need to bear this in mind. So expositances are great. We get a big reduction. But obviously, they come with a caveat that the instance can be terminated at any time. So how do we cope with this in uh, SLA, sort of production environment? Uh, well, so with, with the system I described, then we have multi-layered um, uh, mitigation for this. So eHive is uh, monitoring each of these jobs. And if a job fails, it already um, knows how to handle this. And in fact, it's also monitoring the worker. So if a worker disappears, it's also tracking this, and it, it can request more workers if they um, disappear. So we got the, the DSO also has its own queue, and these jobs are not going to disappear if we lose all our, our spot instances. instances. And, um, and finally, um, yeah, Docker, uh, Docker Swarm uh, works by uh, having um, a Docker uh, uh, Swarm Manager um, components, and if if we lose those, then we could, in theory, um, not be able to use our, our, our swarm. So again, the DSA can handle this. It can just start new swarm managers, and uh, we can carry on. Uh, so, so that's kind of an overview of uh, the system that we implemented. So now I'd just like to talk about uh, how we put this into practice with some re real data. Uh, so. Um, here, here we have a, a tool that we were looking at called Need Data, and uh, what we noticed as we were developing our message dynamics workflow is that this tool was taking a lot longer than we expected. It wasn't the sort of the key part of the workflow. It's, it's kind of a preliminary step to, um, to, to, to um, uh, in, in increase the quality of the data first. Uh, and um, looking at these, these, um, these charts, what we tried is that um, we noticed with 7.5 gigabytes, although the tool was working, um, it was using a lot of memory and taking, taking much longer. So we tried some different um, parameters, basically. We, we added, we, we um, gave it more memory. We tried some different parameters to the tool itself. And um, what, uh, what he does is it, um, uh, it, um, it records the metrics of each job so we can easily see the average um, time per, per job. And look, looking through this table, then by, by changing these parameters, we've gone from nearly seven hours to just under one hour. Uh, which is a big uh, time saving, um, and that's um, sort of sort of interesting. But um, how does that translate to cost? So that's about two and a half dollars for this step, for one sample to less than a, a third of a dollar. So that doesn't sound very much, but a typical metagenomic um, run could be, uh, say, a, a thousand samples. So just for this single step in a pipeline, then uh, the, the cost could be two and a half thousand down to three hundred dollars. And as I mentioned, we're using uh, spot instances. So actually, um, the, the resulting reduction comes down to $40. Uh, so I've uh, mentioned we have written this uh, Metrodynamics workflow. And so the aim of this workflow is basically two things. It's to, to characterize the uh, gene function of every uh, sequence. And it's also, secondly, to identify the, the species, the taxonomy of all, the, uh, of all the, the, the bacteria based on the sequence that we have in the sample. So we're not, we're not um, sequencing a single uh, species here. We're, we're sequencing all the DNA in a, 
in a, in a sample containing um, many different uh, bacteria. And the inference of this pipeline was about, uh, in this example, was about 2 billion uh, read pairs, and it took about 30 hours across 50 instances, and that's about 200 uh, CPUs. And the total cost for this uh, pipeline run was uh, less than $50. So uh, just some uh, conclusions and uh, perspective. So what we've uh, enabled here is a, uh, a scientist who's uh, uh, not uh, a, a computer programmer to uh, upload their data and curate it in the, in the e-catalog. And in fact, they can share that data with other users and collaborate, uh, but they or the other users can also run that pipeline from the e-catalog interface uh, without knowing anything about um, eHive. And in fact, they can monitor the pipeline and they can see all the pipeline steps and how many jobs are running and how many jobs are done uh, as, as the pipeline is, is, is running. And then actually the people uploading the data can be in one country and the people processing the data can be in another country. Uh, so all this um, uh, has, been, uh, has been a great uh, in improvement in the, 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 the use of the technology. Um, but um, um, it's been very successful in, in the Amazon cloud. But can we um, run this now in an HPC environment, uh, for example, on an SGE cluster? So the first thing to note is the SGE cluster already has its own scheduler. And it's very happy with that. And um, probably having Docker Swarm as well it would be a very bad idea, as you don't really want um, two schedulers. Uh, so could we use an, our SGE interface to schedule our Docker containers across, uh, across um, that environment? Well, um, many H HPC admins um, are not, not very happy to run um, Docker uh, in this environment for a variety of reasons. Uh, but we can use another container type called Singularity, uh, which is very well fitted to, to HPC. In fact, it's become very, very popular over the last um, year or so um, in this environment. So what we have is a, a, an SGE Singularity interface for eHive, and that can actually use our Docker images and um, translate them into Singularity and run across the SGE cluster. So basically, we can have, we have uh, just one workflow uh, template, the same file, and we can run that on the Amazon clouds or on an in, uh, internal SGE cluster. So we have our catalog, which can have the data in different places for different um, studies. Um, and we have eHive, which is able to run the same analysis in um, different locations. So what this means is we can move our analytics to the data and not the data to the analytics. And this is a concept we can um, has been known as uh, federated analytics and, and results integration. And in fact, we can actually um, go a step further here and we can run, say, the first step uh, of our pipeline on our internal compute and then our third, third step on AWS cloud. So I've mentioned that we've enabled our end-user scientists to uh, run a pipeline without having to use eHive in a hands-on way. We've got this web um, interface. Uh, so how did we do that? Because eHive was a, a fairly command-line-driven tool. So we, 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 um, we wrote a REST interface for it uh, and with a pipeline um, a, a catalog to keep track of all the runs. And this REST interface will allow the catalog to um, query the run status and things like this. 
Uh, so this is an example of how we've um, integrated two different um, uh, components of um, the Eagle platform. And as the remainder introduced, so this is our, our, our functional architecture diagram. So what I just showed re is uh, represented here in the, the workflow manager um, section diagram. And now we're looking at how we can integrate, um, say, eHive with um, eDiscover. And uh, what this would mean is that we, we run a, a heavy-duty um, workflow analysis, and then when we get the results from that, we've got new um, outputs and uh, data, and we can um, integrate that and link it to the, uh, the sort of knowledge graph uh, in um, eDiscover and um, sort of weave all this um, uh, data together so we can do these sort of complex um, queries. So that's kind of where we are um, at the moment now. So finally, um, uh, Unilever have been using this platform, uh, running these workflows, uh, curating them properly in the first place in the, in the catalog, and uh, running them with this, um, this uh, interface and, um, and uh, the, the time saving and uh, the, the scale that's enabled has um, increased um, by 20 times for, for them. Um, so, um, thank you very much, and um, um, please, if you have any uh, questions.